Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Jesus prayed to the Father the night before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's direction on our thinking. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are in charge. You are the one who sovereignly rules over the universe that you have created. You are the creator of all things, and you are the author of the plan of salvation, our redemption, in which we have true freedom in Christ. And Father, beyond that, you have, as we've studied in Ephesians, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, which for us includes the fact that we are united with Christ into his body so that we have him as our authority and we have a new identity in this age And we are to understand that identity and live and walk in light of that identity. And that as we have studied, we are to grow to maturity. And that we may serve you and serve one another more effectively. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians 4, we pray that you would encourage us and help us to understand the significance of these verses and the foundation that is laid here for understanding what church is all about, why we come to church, what we are to do uh, with what we learn at church, and the role that the local church plays in our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I have entitled the lesson, the body of Christ and our spiritual life. Now, that may seem a little odd to some of you because there is an emphasis in Scripture that there is more to spiritual growth and spiritual nourishment and spiritual maturity than simply studying the Bible, internalizing the Bible, and making it a part of our spiritual growth. If that were all there were to it, then we could um, be mature Christians without ever interacting with other Christians. And I know that there are situations, which I'll address later on, but there are situations in this world where there are uh, believers who have to basically function in a lot of independence and isolation for a lot of different reasons, many of which can be legitimate, some of which may not be legitimate. Uh, But those are the exceptions and not the norm. And so we have to understand that what Scripture teaches is what is supposed to be the norm 
not the exception. We do not make rules or laws on the basis of exceptions, or we shouldn't. Although we have people in government who don't understand that. They want to make rules and laws on the basis of exceptions. But we make rules and laws on the, and principles and policies on the basis of the nor- normal situation, the expected situation, not on the basis of uh, exceptions. And the normal expectation in Scripture is that the local church will be functional and it will be made up of a group of believers that may not be very large, maybe only 10, 12, 15, 20 people, depending on location. And if you have any knowledge of history, you know that was probably the norm through much of history in many different areas and geographical locations uh, in, the, in the world. Uh, but the church is that framework within which spiritual growth takes place and maturity takes place. And we have seen in the scriptures that there are many passages, which we'll come back and review again, that talk about the fact that we have a ministry to one another, just looking through a concordance on the phrase one another teaches us that if you're living in isolation on an island, you cannot have a ministry to one another. It doesn't matter how good your Internet signal is. That one another involves a personal involvement, not a virtual involvement. So we come to this part of the chapter that is making a transition. So what I want to do is something of a something of a flyover uh, in terms of what we looked at in terms of these passages earlier and understand something of the structure of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 because uh, we all know that that uh, we can get pretty granular sometimes looking at the details of each passage and the details of each verse. But I like to come back up and take an overview to help us understand uh, how this fits together as a whole and where things are going. So we've been looking at this section in Ephesians 4, uh, 11 to 14, where it talks about what Christ has given us. And in this narrow section, it talks about these four gifted leaders. But the reality is that this section beginning... It actually begins in verse 7. We'll come back to that. Verse 7 begins, but to each one of us. So that's not just talking about these leadership gifted people in verse 11. It starts with the assumption and the declaration that each one of us has been given grace. Now, now we miss this in English because, as I pointed out when we went to that verse, it's, it's typical that we think of grace given to us, oh, that's salvation. But that would be a misunderstanding of the text. So we'll come back and look at that. It's actually talking about uh, spiritual gifts. Notice it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's the, that's the context. So every believer is given a spiritual gift uh, for his service to the body of Christ. But then there are those special gifted individuals given for, for leadership purposes. Uh, he himself, that is Christ, who is the head of the body, 
gives these four gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints. That's everybody else who are gifted individuals, according to verse 7, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry or the work of service for the edifying, that is, the building up, the uh, strengthening of the body of Christ. That's everybody else. So we see that the saints, in context, have a work of service. They have a role to play in edifying the building up of the body of Christ. It's not just the pastor in the pulpit teaching a Bible class to a congregation. There are That's the primary thing. It's not the only thing. Until we, and this is the foreseen result, we all come to the unity of the faith. So this comes only if we study the faith. That's part of the role of the teaching from the pulpit. We come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, not perfect in the sense of flawless, but maturity, to the measure See, that word measure is used three times in this passage, and it has to do with the ultimate metric for determining spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and the metric is, or the standard, is the Lord Jesus Christ and his character. That's what stature and fullness of Christ means as we studied. For the purpose, or with the end result, that we should no longer be children. Notice the contrast between the mature one in verse 13 and that we should no longer be children, that is, immature, uh, tossed to and carried about. See, children are unstable. They don't know how to make wise decisions or good decisions. And so uh, they go this way and that way depending on the whims of their emotions or whatever other external factors there may be. But not so the mature believer who makes decisions based on the a stable, eternal word of God so that he is controlled by the thinking of Christ, which is the word, and not by external circumstances or internal emotions. Uh, And so the child is often uh, distracted by the deceitful and false teaching of the world around us, which ultimately has its source uh, in Satan, which brings us to these last two verses, which I didn't get on that slide, uh, that uh, in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. This is one of three times in this chapter that we have that phrase in love. So we have to spend time understanding what that means. Uh, May grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body, that's the body of Christ, that's the church. So it's talking ultimately about the church universal, but this doesn't, it's not an either or. It's not excluding that this needs to be manifest in the local church as well. From Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now, th- we got to spend a lot of time on this. 
uh, looking at some of the terminology here. But the bottom line is that we understand that, that the whole body is somehow impacted by what the individual believers are doing. Uh, they are joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, there we go back to the individual again, each one of us, working by which every part does its share, causes, produces growth of the body for the edifying of itself, and then we have that word in love again. It's interesting, this morning I had, um, I've on a four-way text with some other pastors, uh, all of us met about six years ago at uh, Yad Vashem when we went to a um, uh, Christian Leadership Training Institute for seven or eight days, and the four of us really became good friends, and we've had a four-way text for I don't know how many years. And two guys are in the eastern time zone. I'm in central, and then one guy's in the mountain time zone. He lives in, I'm going to create a new category, Uber Rural Montana. That means he, I think he lives in a town that might have five people, not counting him and his wife, okay? And he has to get up early. So he's the first one to send a text because he gets up at like 4.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning to drive 100 miles to his church, something like that. So anyway, the four of us have have, uh, done well, and they show up at different conferences. But I had... uh, I had texted something this morning for for the group, and one guy in New Jersey, Ed Muska, who's a pastor there, says that because um, what I sent was about uh, uh, new, some new something someone wrote this morning about wokeism, and he said I don't worry about pagan wokeism. What cooks me is the believers who reconstruct the love theme into an idol and then try to convince us to bow to it. That is a great statement. Because what we hear today from many quarters is that all we need to do is love one another, but they don't have any idea what love is. It's not biblical love. It is this ephemeral emotion that people identify as love, and then they use that as a false standard for what things should be. And uh, it's interesting how they randomly apply that and inconsistently apply that. So we have to talk about this concept of love, and it's first introduced uh, back in the first part of this this, uh, chapter, uh, where it talks about the fact that that uh, we are to um, back in I think it's um, well I've lost lost the verse uh, but it has to do with our walk in the first six verses and in verse two it says with all lowliness and gentleness that is humility with long suffering bearing with one another in love so from the beginning of this chapter we have in love, and down in verse 16, we have in love. And that sort of brackets that particular, that particular section. So 
what I want to do is just hit some review items and then give us some contextual, broader contextual background for what we're going to look at in these last two verses. Because they sh- they, these verses should profoundly change, modify, improve, refocus some parts of your understanding of the nature of the local church. Okay, so in this chapter, the focus uh, shifted from developing a lot of teaching on the nature of the church, and that's what we see in chapters 2 and 3. Remember in chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Paul begins to give the core information that is related to understanding that which was not revealed in the Old Testament about this new organism that would come into being on the day of Pentecost in uh, A.D. 33, and that is the church, and that prior to the coming into uh, existence of the church, the people of God in the Old Testament, from the time of the call of Abraham until the cross, Uh, The primary group were the Jews. Everything went through Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were a vast number of Gentiles who were also saved during that time period from Abraham to the cross. We see examples of this with Jonah taking the gospel to Nineveh, uh, Naaman the Syrian, uh, numerous others such as Ruth who joined themselves to Israel. So there were many, many Gentiles who were saved during that period. But before God called Abram, there were no Jews, and all those who were saved prior to uh, Abram were Gentiles. And so they are they were the people of God. But the primary people that God works with from Abram to the cross Uh, to Pentecost technically, or the Jews. Then at Pentecost, a new entity comes into existence, and Paul describes this under various terms. And he calls them a new body, a new man, a new building, and a new temple. Okay, so he is focusing on who they are in Christ, And he uses these four metaphors, these four building metaphors, except for the body, uh, to indicate that God is building something new. It's a new body, a new man, new building, a new temple. And the one that is used the most in the New Testament is the new body. The church is the body of Christ. Now, like any analogy, it's not perfect because no analogy is going to be perfect, but it teaches us several things. Christ is the head of the body, and as such, it emphasizes the fact that Christ is the one who is in authority. He is the the head. It's not that he is the source, but he is the head. And so in this metaphor of the body, Paul is going to explain in the in this the rest of that chapter, but more significantly in the latter part of the epistle, uh, the significance of this metaphor in terms of the purpose. And this is what we studied in the last um, last fourteen verses: the purpose of the local church, uh, how the uh, local church is to operate to some degree, and the the ministry of the local church in terms of training 
the people in the local church to equip them to serve one one another. And now at the end of this chapter, it talks about the significance of that relationship between the believers in the local church to one another and the role that that plays in the spiritual growth and the spiritual maturation of each individual. So it isn't this idea of just the pastor teaching a Bible class. That's, I'm not, it's not an either or. That's foundational. That is central because on the basis of that information, the individuals within the church are equipped, they're trained, they're matured so that they in turn can use their spiritual gifts in order to uh, minister to one another biblically. Okay, not in terms of the cultural norms, not in terms of sociological or psychological principles, but in terms of the Word of God. That is what makes it a biblical uh, congregation. We've also studied that the church did not exist prior to the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and so it comes into existence as this new entity that is comprised of both Jew and Gentile equally, where, where Jewishness or being a Gentile is not a factor in the spiritual life or spiritual growth of the individual believer as it was in the time prior to that. And so the church is this unique entity, this unique organism that exists in history between 33 and the rapture. A third thing we see is the emphasis is on Christ as the Savior of the body and the head of the body. And this is emphasized in several places. And guess what? It's only in Paul. If you do a word search through the, through the New Testament for phrases like head and body, you find that those words are used in terms of the normal use in terms of the physical head of a human body or some a couple of other uses. But when it comes to the relationship to the church, the metaphor of the church, it's only used by Paul in a few passages, in about seven or eight passages. I just have a couple of them up here on the screen. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. Now, that's important. One of the reasons I have this up here is for us to understand that, that this concept of being the head is a concept that emphasizes his authority, that the head of the human body controls the human body. It is the brain in the head that controls all of the functions of the human body, and whether it's the hand or the feet or the legs or whatever part of the body it may be, everything is under the control of the head. And so to understand this metaphor, even though you can see in some passages that there might be some other meaning, we have to stick with the clear statement of the meaning of this metaphor of headship. Otherwise, we'll be led astray. He is the head, the authority of the body of the church. And then in Colossians 1.24, we read, uh, Paul says that, 
Uh, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Why? For the sake of his body, which is the church. So Christ is the head, the body is the church. And in Colossians 2.19, he says, uh, and not holding fast to the head, uh, talking about those who did not, not holding fast to the head from whom this from whom that is from the head that is from Christ comes nourishment and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So what he is saying here is that the growth comes ultimately from the head, from Christ. So there, it's a it's a supernatural thing, and and part of that involves the fact that it is Christ who gives these gifted spiritual leaders that we studied in Ephesians 4.11. And ultimately, it is Christ who gives gifts to men. We'll look at that in just a minute, even though it is also clearly stated that it's from the Holy Spirit, but they don't act independently of one another. So my fourth point is that the metaphor of the headship of Christ explains that he is the authority over the church universal, including each local church. Now, when you unpack the concept of headship, it's, you know, we often shrink it down to just say authority. But authority involves a lot of different things. If you are in a position of authority or responsibility over an organization or, or, or uh, some sort of entity, then you have certain responsibilities. Headship relates to leadership. Authority relates to leadership. Authority without leadership usually is going to collapse and and be self-destructive. Authority involves leadership. It involves giving direction, uh, guidance, uh, provision, and sustenance, all of which derives in the church ultimately from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have six verses here to just mention some of these we've already touched on. Ephesians one twenty two says, He that is God the Father put all under his feet. The word things is not in the original, but it's he, he put everything. He put all under his feet. That means everything. Under his feet, that is Christ. That is an image of authority. And gave him, that is, God the Father gave Christ to be head over all things to the church. So that clearly states that this concept of headship is one of authority, leadership, guidance, direction, provision, sustenance, all of those things I mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, we are told that there is a, a, a relationship of leadership in, in, in the human race, Paul says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He's our leader. He's the authority. The head of woman is man. That's a, dealing with authority, leadership. And the head of Christ, even Jesus Christ, is under authority. And that's a significant thing that has to be understood because so many people have the assumption that authority is something God put into effect after creation, but it was always there even in the Godhead throughout all of eternity. 
Now, the implication of that is that authority is inherently good even though it is practiced wrongly by sinful men. But authority is not something to be done away with. And I emphasize that because we live in an antinomian age. The word antinomian means against law, against rules. We want to do what we want to do. It's like the age of the judges that we're studying on Tuesday night. And that is the idea of a pure autonomy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody wrote their own rule book. And the result was that it led to chaos and the destruction of their uh, their culture, and they were often being defeated by other nations. Ephesians 5.23 uses the headship of Christ, the authority of Christ over the church as an analogy for marriage, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. So what we're looking at here is is not marriage but Christology, that Christ is the head of the church, the ecclesiology, the study of the church, that Christ is the ultimate authority over the church and that he's also the savior of the body. In Colossians 1.18 we read, and he is the head of the body, the church. That's again uh, critically stated. Uh, Colossians 2.10, he is also the head of all principality and power. That is a term, those are terms, principalities and powers that relate to the angelic hierarchy of authority, whether it's uh, the elect angels or the fallen angels. So Christ is in authority over all of the angelic host. And Colossians 2.19, and not holding fast to the head for whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Now, what are the joints and ligaments? In the, we'll deal with this in more specifics next time, but this relates to the individual parts of the body. So by analogy, that's relating to individual believers who are in the body of Christ so that uh, this is saying something very similar to what we have in Ephesians chapter 4, is that the body is nourished and knit together by the parts. The parts have a role in the health of the body. So it's not just about the pulpit ministry. Now, that that's going to shake some people up because that's not always been emphasized in our, in, in our background, in our tradition. So fifth, what we see is as the head, the leader, the director, the authority over his body, the church, Christ has given spiritual gifts to us uh, through the Holy Spirit. That's emphasized in the first part of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But here it is seen in um, Ephesians 4, 7 in our passage the first verse, which is sort of a topical sentence to verses 7 to 16, to each one of us, uh, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there's a word that is often used for spiritual gifts that is based on the word for grace, and that is the word charisma. Now, we've brought that over into English where it refers to somebody who has a, a certain type of personality. But in the scripture, that refers to these grace gifts. It has that ending M-A on it. But charis is the Greek word for grace, 
And charis is the word that is used in Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us, charis was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when we look at Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, Romans 12, 6, Paul uses charis to describe spiritual gifts. He says, having then gifts, charisma, differing according to the grace that is given to us. The grace that is given is talking about the grace gifts that are given to each one of us. So charis is shorthand also for spiritual gifts. And that's what we have also in Ephesians 3, 2, when Paul said, and we spent a lot of time studying this, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the, and then we have this phrase that must be understood as a whole, the grace of God which was given to me. The grace of God which was given to Paul, he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about his spiritual gift of apostleship uh, to lead and direct uh, and to train and equip local local churches. And so the grace of God given or the grace given is this phrase that is used several times in Scripture to talk about spiritual uh, spiritual gifts. Now that brings us down to an understanding of uh, where we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verse 15. Now when we look at Ephesians 4, 15... But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So just looking at the English, what you see here is that a focal point is growing up to all things into him. From whom, that is from Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So it is from him. He's the head. He's the one who provides the ultimately the spiritual growth. But that comes through the gifted leaders and the operation of spiritual gifts of individuals in or within the body of Christ. So with that, what I want to do is take us back to a couple of the verses that we looked at in our, in our scripture reading this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. It's easy to remember the passages, some of the passages related to spiritual gifts. It's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then we have Ephesians 4. Okay, so in uh, Romans 12, 4 and 5, for as... We have many members in one body. So you have two things. You have the unity of the body of Christ, which is one. But then within that body, there are many members. We have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function. So not everybody's the same. There's differences. One of the philosophical problems that has plagued uh philosophers since ancient times is the problem. It's called the problem of the one and the many. How do you, apart from the Bible, explain that there is unity and diversity uh, equally within within the universe and within the world? Uh, Everything within human autonomous thought either goes all the way to the many, emphasizing all of the parts. Politically, that is reflected in anarchy, because everybody is equal and everybody's an equal authority, or it goes all the way in the other direction, emphasizing the one, 
Plato's Republic, that there's one or there's an oligarchy of whom, of an elite group that rules everything and everybody. But what we see in the scripture is that the one and the many have an ultimate equality. Where do we see that? I know it's too early in the morning to have you think such deep thoughts. The Trinity. See, as, 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 as Bible believers, we have to start with ultimate reality, which is the Trinity. We don't start with what we see. We start with the Trinity and the script, and we start with Revelation. Scripture says that God is one, but God is also many, and they're equal. And we say, oh, that's, that's not logical. It is if you think biblically that God is one, one in essence. He's one in purpose. He is three, so that solves the problem. And so the body of Christ is the same way. We have one body that is our unity. That's the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, talking about the things that we have in unity. There is a, a, a unity of the faith. There's one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ. And then look at this. This is really interesting. Individually, we are members of one another. That means that there is a sense in which there is an interdependence between the members of the body of Christ. There is a connection that is I'm not sure what the words are to put that into place, but there's an interconnectedness and an interdependence that is built into the body of Christ. Just as there is an interconnectedness and interdependence in the cell structure of our physical bodies. Now let's turn over from Romans chapter 12 to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a lengthy chapter that most people think of and go there to talk about spiritual gifts. But the discussion of the spiritual gifts is talking about how God has gifted each individual, but it is within the context of talking about uh, about the body of Christ. And so let's just hit a couple of the high points. Uh, verse, go to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, for as the body is one and has many members. Here we go, one and the many again. The body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. How did this happen? How did this unity, this creation of this entity take place? That's verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The means that Christ used, the instrument he used was the Holy Spirit, so that at the time that we trust Christ as Savior, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to bring us into and identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection and bring us into this new entity called the body of Christ. Verse 14 says, For in fact the body is not one member but many. And then he uses the illustration, I skipped over these in the reading, the illustration that you have a foot and you have a hand and uh, you have other body, an ear and an eye, and one can't say to the other, you're more important than I am because every part 
Remember what doctors used to say about the tonsils and the appendix, that they were just vestigial organs and they had no significant role, and then we discovered sometime later that, yeah, they do play a part in the immune system of the body, and so you need to keep them and not get rid of them. Uh, all the parts have a significant role to play. Now let's get down to about verse um, 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Uh, I'm going to skip past that to um, verse 25. Verse 24. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body. That's the point I want to get to. God is the one who composes the body. He's the one who determines, ultimately, it's talking about God the Father determines what gifts we have, I mean, this is the interplay of the Trinity, and I don't want to get all bogged down into that, but God the Father determines how the parts are put together in the body of Christ so that we ha- every part, that means every single believer has an important role to play within the function of the local church, the universal church, the body of Christ. Uh, God composed the body, having given greater honor to, honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. There's that phrase. And the word for care, if you were listening in to Thursday night or were here Thursday night, when we t- passage casting all your care upon him because he cares for you, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't have these cares. That, those are the, that's the same word here. Um, that members should have the same care, that is, the same care, the same concern for one another. That's the interaction of the members of the body of Christ in terms of the application of their spiritual gifts. That they should, uh, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it, just as we rejoice with Becky today after her graduation. Um, the other day. Uh, Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. So this gives us this background. One last verse before we close. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses, um, let's start at verse 7. Okay, it's a warning, the end of all things is, is near. We don't know when the rapture is going to occur, so therefore we should be serious and watchful in our prayers. Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. Now see how love here is critical to the function of these spiritual gifts, just as it's displayed in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the first half of chapter 13 is about the fact that love needs to be that, which is the environment in which the gifts operate. Um, love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. There's that phrase again, that this is the mutual ministry of the members of the body of Christ to one another without grumbling As each one has received a gift, each one of us, each one of you have received a gift, minister it to one another. 
Now, the important part here is the one another refers to believers. Now, you can't do that if you're not part of a local assembly. Now, that goes back to what I said earlier. There are exceptions. There are, you think about frontier days, and you have people going off, and they're on their own, and they're breaking new ground and going from, uh, crossing over the Appalachians and going west. You have a lot of people who are in isolation. That's not normal. That was exceptional. You have a lot of situations like that in rural communities. You think of believers that lived in pretty much isolation either on the American frontier or you think about early, early Middle Ages in Europe, and you might not know another Christian or you might know of one other Christian somewhere. You're living out, eking out a living on your land or, or as a serf or as a peasant working for some overlord. So those aren't normative-type circumstances. The Bible's addressing what's normative. What this tells us is that the local church can't operate as a lot of individual cells sitting on a Zoom meeting around the world. I don't even know who said it. Somebody said this to me sometime recently and said, well, you know, that's the direction the church is moving. Everybody's going in this direction. Everybody is is uh, meeting via Zoom and virtual reality. And I said, we don't get the our, our, our structures for the local church from what so- society does, from what the culture does. The function of the body of Christ cannot happen in virtual reality. Now, there are certain things that we can do in virtual reality, and thank God for that. But ultimately, getting to know people, ministry to one another takes place within the reality of physical involvement in a local church. The body of Christ is is a personal relationship within a local assembly, whether that local assembly is 10 people or 10,000 people. That's where, where it functions. And so it's necessary to do today the same thing we have done for the last 2,000 years and that the body of Christ meets physically, face-to-face. And uh, thank God we have people who live in parts of this world that are isolated. I remember when I was in Connecticut teaching on this same topic, and a man wrote me and he said, I've been listening to you say that for a number of years, and I've tried every church in my small town in Vermont And I went to a congregational church for a while until at Easter he said, Jesus did not rise physically and bodily from the grave. But what do I do? I said, well, you're doing the best you can right now. You don't have anything around you that is teaching, that has a a solid biblical uh, content from the pulpit. And there are many many places today where people can't find anybody that is teaching uh, it may be shallow or whatever. I had one one man who's gone on and done a lot of different ministries now, but but he was one who was in the military, so he spent most of his time just listening to Bible teaching on a tape till he heard me, and then uh, he was stationed near a small town, found a small Baptist church, and within a couple of months he was teaching a Sunday school class, and when the pastor uh, wasn't able to be in the pulpit, he asked him to be in the pulpit. He hadn't gone to seminary, but he knew the, knew the Bible and he could teach. 
And so you never know what role you can play. It's going to church is not what am I going to get out of it. It's what is, how is God going to use me to mature me so I can have a ministry to others in the body of Christ? If your focus is, I'm going to choose this church because of what I'm going to get out of it, then you need to grow up a little bit. You're acting like a baby believer. You're very self-centered. And you can still get involved with the local church and say, they don't feed me very much at all. Well, thank God you have the Internet And you can listen to me or a number of other pastors who are teaching solid biblical teaching. But don't go off and think you can, the normative experience for the believer is to to live and walk in isolation. Because that is really, uh, uh, you're sort of uh, amputating part of the body of Christ yourself. So this is, this is something we have to look at in detail. This is a very important section as we come to verses, um, uh, verses 15 and 16, talking about every part doing its share. What does that mean? And causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I don't think those are good translations, but they're, they're, they convey something close to what I think the original is saying, and that is that we all have a role and a place in the body of Christ. So we'll be looking at this, and it sets the stage. Guess what happens next in verse uh, 17? Paul says, I don't want you to walk like the Gentiles walk. He goes back to that theme of walking. Everything that is said in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 is to lay the groundwork so we can understand the really significant teaching on the spiritual life that comes in verses 17 to the end of the chapter. So it all functions and fits together. So we'll come back and look at that next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to see this this overview and the consistency of revelation in these different epistles about the body of Christ and the role that we each have as individuals in terms of the uh, function and the health of the local body of Christ as well as the impact on the uh, universal body of Christ. Father, we know that uh, there are many who live in difficult circumstances and it is uh, maybe almost impossible to be involved with any kind of local assembly. Maybe it's geographical, maybe it's theological, um, many different reasons, but that's not the normative situation and the normative is within a local body and it may even be a very small, 10, 5, 10, 15 people. But, Father, we know that your plan is for us to be involved in a lo- in and with a local group of believers. Father, we pray that you might also make clear the good news of what Christ did on the cross for us through what we've studied today, that it's not on the basis of works or ritual. It's not on the basis of uh, going to church or going to a specific church, but Our eternal destiny is determined by that choice to believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we pray you might make that clear to anyone listening, anyone here, anyone who is online uh, listening to the teaching today that, that Christ is offering to us life, an abundant life, 
And the basis is just trusting in him and his work on the cross. So, Father, we thank you for these things and pray that this will strengthen and encourage us spiritually. In Christ's name, amen.